there is a, a question that one or most people will ask themselves at some point in their lives. And it's a question that is uh, usually asked around different milestones in one's life or different uh, life stages. It may be asked around when one is graduating from high school or graduating from college. It may be a question that is asked when one reaches that midlife crisis within their, their life. Or it may be a question that's asked in one's twilight years. This question takes on many different forms. It's asked in many different ways, and it's, it's simply, what is my purpose? The different forms of that question are, what am I here for? What am I meant to do? Where am I going? What direction do I take? And if you're a Christian, the question might sound something like this. What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? What direction does God want me to take? This morning, I hope to build a framework from which we can work in order to answer this question in its various forms. And so if you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to be first, and we're going to work through verses 1 through 7. And then eventually we'll make our way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and put your finger there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll work through verses 1 through 12. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, and customary to the New Testament time period, when an author wrote a letter, he would introduce himself first, and that's what Paul has done here. He says, Paul, and he's ready to get into his letter. But Paul does something uh, else when he writes his letters. He lays a foundation or, or lays out a defense for the authority from which he writes. And so he begins, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's number one. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. Number two, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So we see that Paul, he lays out his defense. First and foremost, he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Second, he's been called to be an apostle. And, and that definition of apostle is simply an envoy or, or a messenger, maybe an, an ambassador. When you consider apostle in that word in the New Testament, it's one that's been commissioned to send or bring or proclaim a message. And Brad read from Acts chapter 9, and that's what we see with Saul before he becomes Paul. He was commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to bring the gospel message. And this is something that Paul is passionate about. You see that in verse 1, that he's, he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus and I've been called to be an apostle for the gospel of God. And then when you look at verse 9, in verse 9 it says, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching 
the gospel of His Son. And then verse 15, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And then verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul lays out his defense for the authority from which he writes, especially when it comes to the gospel, the good news. But before we get into verse 3 and 4, I think it's important that we understand the word gospel and how it was used in the New Testament time period, the first century. You see, gospel, the Greek for gospel is euangelion, and it's a term that was used to be, it was good news, like Mark chapter 1 refers to the gospel. It was good news, but it was usually used in terms with military victory. And so if I took my army and I went out and I, I went to war or to battle against another army and my army won, then I would, I would commission messengers to go out and throughout the country and proclaim the good news of our military victory. It was also used in association with political change or political victory. If a new king had been anointed or a new governor appointed or in terms of the Roman Empire, a new senator had been elected or, or uh, put into place. Again, messengers would be sent out throughout the, the land proclaiming the good news. Or if you were as prestigious as Caesar, as in 9 AD when he sends out messengers throughout the land, throughout the Roman Empire, to proclaim the good news of his birthday. But often, it's used for military victory, and it's used for political change or political victory. And that's important when we look at verse 3. Regarding His Son, who as to His human nature was a descendant of David. So Paul is addressing the human nature of Jesus here when he says that he's a descendant of David. So he's doing two things here. First, because he's a descendant of David, he is claiming that Jesus is king here in the flesh, here on earth, king of Israel, which is something you didn't do in the Roman Empire. Because any individual that claimed to be king or set themselves above Caesar, well, they usually were executed. Because Caesar didn't like that. And Paul is writing his letter to the Romans in Rome claiming that Jesus in the flesh is king. It also alludes back to the prophecy in 1 Samuel chapter 7 about Jesus being the Messiah. The one that would come and save. And then you get into verse 4, Paul addresses the spiritual side of things or, or Jesus' divine nature when he writes this, And who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Now we see that Jesus is divine because He is the Son of God, but there's also military victory here. 
Because it is through the resurrection from the dead that Jesus has victory over death, but he also has victory over Satan through his resurrection. Gospel. Euangelion. Good news. So not only is Jesus king in, in the flesh, he's also Messiah. He's also the Son of God. Now get the last term that Paul uses here of Jesus in the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. King, Messiah, Son of God, Lord. He's addressing the divine nature of Jesus, the spiritual side of things, if you will. And, and when you consider the definition of Lord, Jesus has authority over all. He has influence over all. Jesus is Lord. Gospel. Euangelion. Good news. And that's what Paul is passionate about. And then in verse 5, he goes back to the defense of, of his authority through him. And for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to the good news to the gospel. What's my purpose? What am I here for? I am called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds another layer to that. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called, there's that word again, called to be saints called to the obedience that comes from faith, called to belong to Jesus, called to be saints. What is my purpose? Well, Jared, that all makes sense, but, but what does that look like in practice? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, to be, to be set apart for Him, to be pure. And Paul adds to that framework when you go back and we start working through this passage beginning in, in verse 1. Now he's writing to the Thessalonians at Thessalonica. The, the brothers and sisters, that was a hard word to say, Thessalonica. Did I get it right that time? Someone said yes. Uh, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Paul has given them instructions how to live. How to live in such a way that they would please God. And then he commends them for doing that. As in fact, you are doing. You know what? We have been given those same instructions. We have it contained right here. We know how to live in such a way that we can please God. And then Paul goes on. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul employs two verbs there that when they're together, we ask you and urge you or we exhort you and urge you, depending on what version you have. He's really drawing attention to something that is of utmost importance, that is very serious and that we need to consider. And when Paul is saying we ask you and urge you to do this more and more, the idea here is that we continue and we grow in this concept of, of living in such a way to please God. It's not one of those things that, that when you get there and you, you have arrived and you're like, wow, this was great, and then you go home. Think of it this way, if you will. Uh, we've got some, some wonderful gardeners in the congregation, whether it's a flower garden or a vegetable garden or, or just the... the uh, People's yards look immaculate. They look great. You know, those folks didn't just wake up one spring morning and say, oh, wow, the canals are on, so let's turn on the water. And everything's going to grow. No, there was a plan that was put in place. They planted. They, they watered. They pruned. They, they weeded. They fertilized. They, they watered. They weeded some more. And they, they pruned and weeded and watered and weeded and continued to weed. There's a plan for yards and gardens and flower gardens, even rock gardens, to look great. If you don't plan for growth, you will never grow. If you don't plan to live in such a way to please God and to do that more and more, or as the New American Standard translates that, to excel still more in that, you will never do that more and more. You will never excel in that. You have to plan for that growth. Maybe we should think of it this way when we consider the words of the famous philosopher Winnie the Pooh. I always get to where I am going by walking away from where I have been. I always get to where I am going by walking away from where I have been. You see, the idea is that we can sit here and we can evaluate where we are with regards to our relationship with God. And, and for some of us, it may be that, wow, I am right where I need to be and uh, I, I'm, this is where I'm at. And that is great. That is to be commended. For others, it may be like, out there, we see where we need to be, but I'm right here. Well, I need to start walking to get to there, and I'll leave this place behind. You have to plan for growth. You have to walk towards that goal. Verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will... As Christians, we ask, what's God's will for my life? Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should be sanctified. And then Paul goes into what that looks like. Kind of the rubber meets the road here. When he says 
that you should avoid sexual immorality. You want to know how to be sanctified? You avoid sexual immorality. And that's an umbrella term that just covers all types of sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Paul lays out a framework of what it looks like to be sanctified. We're to avoid sexual immorality. We're to control our bodies. We're to not take advantage of our brothers and sisters. We're to live a holy life, a pure life, as verse 7 says. You want to know what God's will is for your life? To be sanctified. Well, how do you do that? You read through verses 3 through 7, and, and you know how to do that. And this is just one list that Paul uses in his letters. There's other lists that, that he goes through in terms of things that, that we should avoid and things that we should partake of. It's those instructions that He has given to us through God's Word so that we can live in such a way to please God. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Verses 9 and 10, Paul writes about the love that the Thessalonians have for one another and for the brothers throughout Macedonia, and they are to be commended for that. But in there, at the end of verse 10, just like at the end of verse 1, he says, We urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Excel still more in that love. Continue to grow in that love for one another. Live in such a way to please God. Avoid sexual immorality. Control your bodies. Don't take advantage of your brothers and sisters. Live in purity. Love one another. Do so more and more. Excel in those areas. And finally, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You know, when we look at those words and we just take those at face value, it, it may come across in such a way that it's like, man, when everything blows up around me and... and I, I just got to keep my head down and just keep working and keep moving forward and, every, and I just got to keep my mouth shut. You know, I think in some situations that is the best advice. In some circumstances, that's the best thing to do. I appreciate Denny Petrillo, the uh, director of the Bear Valley Bible Institute, and how he uh, talks about this passage, especially when it comes to making it your ambition to lead a quiet life and defining that term quiet. And maybe a better way to understand that is that we are to be calm, not easily irritated, not easily agitated. 
so that when things do blow up, we don't get all worked up and bent out of shape and lash out in, in anger or angst or, or anything like that. But instead, we remain calm because we know who is in charge. Two things that may be happening here in Thessalonica for Paul to write this. The first thing is... People in Thessalonica and throughout the Roman Empire, what they would do, they would throw their support behind uh, prominent public figures. Kind of like an election, right? But they would throw their, their support behind prominent public figures in such a way in hopes that if I, if I provide my support and I'm vocal about the person that I am supporting, then hopefully they will recognize that and say, wow, Jared, thank you for your support. And look, you got all these other folks to, to follow along and, and I'm really moving forward. Here's some food. Here's some clothes. Go, go clothe yourself. Or if I'm doing an exceptionally good job, it may be that, hey, there's, I've got a little cottage over here on this piece of property. You can, you can live there. And Paul may be addressing the, the fact that Christians were doing that to each other in Thessalonica. And he says, no, don't, don't do that. Live a, live a calm life, a quiet life, and work with your hands and, when, and support yourselves. And when you do that, you win the respect of outsiders. It could be that the Christians are thinking, you know what? Jesus is on his way back. And that's where my focus is. And my, I'm so focused on that that I'm not taking care of my own physical needs. And, and they're relying on the brothers and sisters to do that. And they're wearing each other out. Whatever the case may be, the idea, the concept here, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to be calm, to not be easily irritated or not be easily agitated, still applies over a, a broad range of things, that we just don't get bent out of shape because we know who is in charge. What is my purpose? Does my life have meaning? What is God's will for my life? I assure you that your life does have purpose. I assure you that your life does have meaning. If there's anything that we can do for you today, would you come as we stand and sing?